This message was presented at the GYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good evening. It is a very long walk from there to here. They warned me, but it's much longer when you actually do it. Welcome. Are you excited to be here? So about one-third of you are excited to be here. How about the other two-thirds? Excited? Yes? No? Wish you were somewhere else? Welcome to GYC and Happy New Year. Can you believe it? Another GYC. Here we are. Our theme before men and angels, the feather. What do you think of it? You know, honestly, within the executive committee, it has been one of the most polarizing images we've had for any theme. Some people absolutely love it, and other people absolutely just hate it. Does anyone hate it? That's good. I, I, I tend to love it. You know something? I have been involved in planning, or at least assisting in planning, 10 GYCs. How many? 10 GYCs, if you count Europe. Of all the GYCs I've been involved in, this one has been the most difficult for us to plan. All 10. Most difficult. And someone from the executive committee, I think it was Jeff, he said, you know, as soon as we made the decision to hand out the great controversy in Orlando, Florida, the problems got stronger and more. Amen? God wants to do incredible things through this conference. Last night we prayed the executive committee got together and, and we had a very humble prayer. You know, we have two new additions to the executive committee. I have a six-month-old. Jeff has a six-month-old. We prayed that our children would never have to come to GYC and comprehend what is being spoken about. We want Jesus to come again. Never have we had such difficulties. God has incredible blessings in store for you. This is an interesting Bible. This is the Bible of the president of GYC, and it is the last time I will preach with it. I've been involved with GYC, and on Sunday, I retire. It's been an interesting and exciting and a blast to serve God through GYC. I was young, unmarried, no gray hair, and I joined GYC. I'm not so young anymore. I have quite a bit of gray hair. I have a lovely wife and now a son. And so it seems fitting to me to retire from GYC. But let me just share with you a couple things. You, you get ready to retire and you, you begin to survey the landscape of what God has done through GYC. God has blessed us abundantly. I've had the privilege to travel to five of the six continents as president of GYC, and something has become so clear to me. If we did not have a conference each year, GYC would still exist. 
If we didn't have a conference, if we didn't have the nice flowers, if we didn't have the, the fancy feather like it or not, if we didn't have the screens, if we didn't have the video cameras, if we didn't have the piano, if we didn't have any of these things, GYC would still exist. Because GYC is not a youth conference. At our core, GYC is radical commitment to him. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. And so traveling around, meeting different young people all around the world, God has a generation that is radically committed to him. You take away all the stage and everything else, and GYC still exists. And so I am confident in telling you the best days of GYC are ahead of us. The best days of GYC are ahead of us. Tonight, I'm going to share with you a devotional thought. The, when I get my notes in order, the clock in front of me is racing down, and honestly, I don't care. It's my last year. We're going to go as long as we need to go. Are you prepared for that? As of Christmas Day, I wasn't even thinking that I would preach tonight. I was going to have someone else come, and someone else was preparing a sermon, and, and we got talking and, and started thinking about the ph philosophic journey we might take tonight. And immediately after listening to that, I realized I needed to preach the message tonight because it's a message for me. One point, one appeal, and honestly, it's for me. You can listen in if you'd like, and I will pray in a moment that God also touches your life with it, but it's one point, one message, and an appeal for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, here we are, the opening night of GYC. It is New Year's, and we can think of no better way to spend it with you. So we come together by the thousands, different countries, different backgrounds, different ages, different experiences, but united under you. Lord, we ask that you'd speak through me tonight. Uh, despite my glaring deficiencies and weaknesses, we ask that you would shine through. That as this message is delivered, that is a direct appeal to me, that maybe, Lord, it would touch the heart of one other, or maybe many others. We pray that our minds wouldn't be distracted tonight, that we would be completely focused on you and the message you have for us. Lord, we pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Right now, at this moment in time, there are about 7 billion people on the planet. 7 billion. That makes you 0.0000014 of the Earth's population. In terms of numbers in the Earth's population, you are extremely insignificant. And yet Paul tells us in, in his, his letter, he says, you are a spectacle. 
And, and, and he uses an interesting word in the Greek. He says, you're a theatron, where we, get the word the, where we get the word theater. And he says, you are a spectacle, not just to men, not just to the world, not just to your parents, your friends, your co-workers, not just to them, but to the world and to angels. We're insignificant, and yet we are a spectacle to the world. So the question we want to ask ourselves tonight is, why? What is it about you and I that have the ability, the the capacity to hold captive even the attention of angels? And for us to answer that question, I would submit to you, we have to understand who we are. In the beginning... Genesis 1 and verse 1, you can turn there if you'd like. In the beginning, God created, God did what? Created the heavens and the earth. Now, right away from this passage, we notice something. It says, in the beginning, God created. The, the word there is Elohim. This is the same Elohim that Moses later asks in the book of Exodus. He says, Elohim, who are you? And God comes to him and he says, very potently yet very small and succinct, he said, I am that I, I am. Essentially, I am. Pure existence. No beginning, no end. Not subject to time like you and I are. So in the beginning, Elohim created. So notice this very carefully. God didn't have a beginning or an end. Elohim, I am, did not have a beginning or an end. But he chooses, he chooses to create a beginning to place themselves in human history. You missed it. God did not need a beginning, does not have a beginning, but in choose, he chooses to create a beginning so he can be a part of your story. Elohim comes in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created. He chooses to create a beginning so that he can be a part of your life and a part of mine chooses to interject himself into human history. You go out at night and you look up into the stars and most of us, good Adventist upbringing, can spot Orion. You look at Orion and on the right shoulder is the 10th largest star. It is Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse is 13,000 times brighter than the sun and 10,000 times lighter. If you replace Betelgeuse with our sun, it's, it would extend past the orbit of Jupiter. Now, you look at, at Betelgeuse and you can see it, but it is 643 light years away. Can you believe that? That is you traveling at 186,000 miles per second for 643 years, and you can look up and you can see it. But that's nothing. With the naked eye, when the conditions are right, you can look up and see the galaxy Andromeda. Andromeda is 2.5 million light years away from you. Now, that's a large number. And my hunch is we can't comprehend that number. So tomorrow when you're at breakfast, I want you to do me a favor. Can you do that, yes or no? You pull out your napkin and you get out a pen and you write down the number 15. What number are you going to write down? 15. You're putting it on your napkin tomorrow morning where the food is great at breakfast. 15. After the 15, you are going to write down 19 zeros. That's how many miles away we are from Andromeda. 15, 19 zeros. 
Past Andromeda, there is approximately a hundred and billion galaxies. Each of those galaxies has a hundred billion stars. Each of those stars has a hundred billion, excuse me, suns. Each of those suns has approximately a hundred billion stars. In terms of the sheer numbers of the galaxies and the distances involved, you and I are insignificant. And yet Paul boldly declares we're a spectacle, a theatron. How are you and I as insignificant beings when we think about the vastness of God's creation spectacles to the world? How do you and I hold captive even the imagination of angels? In the beginning, God created light. Light is unique. Picture with me outreach day. Outreach day is Friday, and let's just say you and I are on a bus going out on outreach. You're going to do that, yes or no? So one-third of you are going out on outreach? Are you going to be on a bus with me or not? You and I are on a bus. We are traveling at 50 miles an hour. How fast are we going? Not a trick question. 50 miles an hour. Now, Jeff, he's there and he is directing the buses. Jeff is stationary. He is not moving. He is going zero miles per hour. How fast is Jeff going? Zero miles an hour. Now, let's just say in this imaginary Friday outreach day, you and I are cruising down the bus, and we happen to have a bow and arrow in our hands. Now, I don't know why we have a bow and arrow in our hands, but we do for whatever reason. Let's just say you and I shoot that arrow off the bus. Most arrows travel at about 300 feet per second, and we could round that up to 200 miles an hour. Our arrow flying off the bus is going to go how fast? How fast is it going to go? 250 miles per hour. Now, Jeff, let's just say, for whatever reason, he's got a bow and arrow too, and he shoots it from where he's standing still. How fast is that arrow going to go? 200 miles an hour. Now, this fits very nicely with our, our worldview, our, under, our Newtonian understanding of the universe. A plus B equals C. We shoot it. It, it has the flying through the air at 250 miles an hour. Now, let's just say we had a huge spotlight on this bus. Again, I don't know why we have a huge spotlight, but we have a huge spotlight. And, and we want to really kick things up because you and I are excited, yes, to get out to outreach. So we tell the bus driver to, to crank things up to a thousand feet per second. Okay? Now, we shine the flashlight from the bus, or, or let's do a thousand now I'm really going to confuse you. Let's do a thousand miles per second. How fast are we going? We're going 1,000 miles per second. Now, we shoot the flashlight, which light travels at 186,000 miles per second. We're going 1,000 miles per second. How fast is the light going to go? How fast? Did anyone say 187? You would assume that, wouldn't you? Newtonian understanding of the universe, A plus B equals C. You know, we shoot the flashlight and it goes 186,000 miles per second. Jeff shoots the flashlight, it goes 186,000 miles per second. We can get the bus going 185,000 miles per second. We shoot it, it goes 186. Jeff shoots it, it goes 186. It does not matter how fast we are going, it is going to shoot out of that beam at the same speed. 
strange, isn't it? I mean, it just boggles our mind. We can't even comprehend light. Light defies physics. But you and I, we walk around the universe and all the Newtonian understandings that we have, A plus B equals C, we have to live by. Light doesn't. You would think that something like light would hold captive the imagination of the world. You would think something like light that makes zero sense to you and I in our minds, zero sense to a logical mind, would hold captive, would be the theater to the world. But yet Paul says, we are the spectacle. Astronomers have found this planet racing through our galaxy at 67,000 miles per hour. At the same time, it is rotating at 1,000 miles per hour. You and I, we affectionately call it Earth. We have a greater light that gives us 4 million tons of energy per second. In an 11-year cycle, that sun varies one-tenth of one percent. Every 11 years, one-tenth of one percent. Our Earth tilts at 23 and a half degrees. You know why it does that? Because if it didn't tilt, one side of the earth would become too hot, so life couldn't be sustained on planet earth, and the other side would be too cool, no life on planet earth. Hydrogen converts 0.007% of its mass to helium. If there is 0.006 converted, no life on planet earth. If there is 0.008, no life on planet earth. We are 93 million miles away from the sun, 94 million miles away, no life on planet Earth, 92 million miles away, no life on planet Earth. The the oceans have 3.4% salt contact. Your blood has 3.4% salt content. 4% salt content, no life on planet Earth. In the oceans or your blood, 2%, no life on planet Earth. Our earth is finely tuned to sustain life. Our atmosphere has 21% oxygen, 23% no life on planet earth, 19% no life on planet earth, and there are hundreds and hundreds of these finely tuned dials so that life can be sustained on planet earth. Carbon levels, ratios of protons to neutrons and neutrons to electrons and core temperatures of the earth, all finely tuned so that you and I can exist on planet earth. And it's more than that. If one of these little dials are slightly off, the rest are rendered useless. All of them have to show up and be perfect every day for life to exist on planet earth. You look at the finely tuned earth and you would think that would be a spectacle to men and to angels. All these hundreds and hundreds of finely tuned dials exactly, perfectly executing the will of God day after day after day. You and I can't go a day without making a mistake. The earth goes day after day without making a mistake. Yet somehow, as as insignificant beings, you and I are a spectacle, theatron, a theater not just to our peers, not just to our parents, not just to our friends and cousins and family members, but a theater to the world and hold captive even the attention of angels. 
You and I look at this beautifully, finely tuned, doing everything to God's will, planet Earth, and think, why isn't it the spectacle? You don't have all of a sudden apple trees producing oranges. They execute perfectly every day. And yet you and I can't go a day without making a mistake. And somehow, we're the spectacle. Everything we have is made up of atoms. Atoms are point zero 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 one millimeters in diameter. That is small. Let's pretend you and I had a grapefruit just to illustrate how small that is. A, a grapefruit only with neutron atoms. Nitrogen atoms, rather. Now, we look at that grapefruit and we slice it open and we think, we want to take a look at all the atoms inside of this grapefruit. So we pull out each atom and we blow it up to the size of a blueberry. Now look down at your hand and picture a blueberry in it. Do it quickly, quickly, quickly. I'm looking. Pull out your hand. You're picturing a blueberry in it. You're tuning in by 3ABN. Get your hand out. Look at the blueberry. Now, we've just blown up every nitrogen atom in a grapefruit to the size of a blueberry. How big now do you think our grapefruit has to be to encapsulate all of those blueberry-sized atoms? The size of the earth. Can you believe that? From here all the way to the bottom, completely filled up with blueberries. Now, you might remember from grade school, sort of the, the diagram of an atom. You've got right a dot in the middle, and then sort of circling it is this other dot. The dot in the middle is the nucleus. It has your protons and your neutrons. That's where the mass of the atom is. Let's say we slice open that blueberry. We take a look at it, and we want to look at the nucleus where the mass of the atom is. You know in our blueberry, we can't see the nucleus with our naked eye. So we blow it up to the size of a baseball stadium. And then the nucleus is the size of a baseball. Things are really, really small. Now, these are extremely dense too. And let's say we wanted to get something that is an equal density to that baseball size blown up atom. Now, let's take a box about one foot by one foot and let's start smashing cars into it because we're trying to create something that is the same density. I will donate my truck, we'll smash it into this one foot box and then we'll have everyone in this auditorium smash their, one f their car into this one foot by one foot box. Will you do that, yes or no? It's just an example, you can do it. So there's, there, we're smashing our cars in and, and I don't know how many people there are, maybe 3,000. You think there's 3,000 cars in here? We'll just go with that. Three or 4,000 cars. We're smashing it into this one-foot box. Now, that's going to be pretty dense. Three or 4,000 cars. You agree? Yes or no? One-foot box, three or 4,000 cars. You know how many cars we've got to smash in there to get an equivalent density? 6.2 billion. Whew. Let me tell you something, friends. You and I are insignificant. 6.2 billion cars to get an equivalent density. Blow it up to the, to the size of a blueberry and it fills the earth. And in the 1890s, they thought to themselves, you know, it'd be really cool if we could get to the bottom of these particles. 
So, so they, were, they got to splitting these atoms and, 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 and they got to something even smaller than an atom. A quark. And then they thought, you know, we'll split that and, and they found something else and we'll split that and they found something else and they split that. And, and, and now they believe that there's, there's a theory out there that the smallest thing on the universe is a string. You may have heard of string theories and super string theories, these strings of energy. Now, just to give you an idea of how small we're talking about in these strings, check this out. They are saying that the universe to the earth, okay, the entire universe to the earth is like an atom to a string. We can't comprehend that. You look at the atoms and, and the, the density of the nucleus and, and the quarks and the leptons and the bosons and the Higgs bosons and the strings. You and I are insignificant. You would think that, that of the created world that would hold captive the attention of angels. But Paul says, you and I are the spectacle. Theatron theater to the world. Up in the, the stars, you have these stars that are essentially dead stars. Their protons and neutrons have collapsed on each other. It would be like if we looked up at the sun and crumpled it like a piece of paper to a 10-mile diameter. Now, you take a piece of a neutron star, and let's just say we can extra extract one sugar cube of a neutron star and put it onto our hand. So you and I look at your hand again. Quickly, look at it, look at it, look at it. You no longer have a blueberry there, yes? But you have one sugar cube of a neutron star. How much do you think that weighs? 100 million tons. 100 million tons. You and I, we are insignificant. But yet somehow, Paul says, we are a spectacle. In the beginning, God created. He, he filled the skies with fowl. There is a bird called the albatross. Its wingspan is 12 feet, and it can fly 600 miles without stopping. The world record for an individual set in New Zealand, I think even last year, is about half of that. 300 and some miles without stopping. That is nothing compared to, I've got to just get the name, I always forget it. The bar-tailed godwit, the bar-tailed godwit can fly 7,000 miles without stopping. That would be like you and I running to Seattle where we held the conference last year, back to Orlando, and then back to Seattle without stopping. You and I are weak compared to the foul of the air. My wife and I were traveling one time from Salt Lake City to Bend, Oregon. We had just taken off and there we heard this tremendous thud and, and, and felt this tremendous thud on the plane and the, the, the captain came across the loudspeaker and he said, folks, we have hit a bird. We are going to turn around. The bird had collapsed the cone, the nose of the plane. We felt like it was a good idea to turn around. They've hit a buzzard at 37,000 feet above sea level. Seven miles 
above. There are approximately 4,000 species of birds that migrate. There are geese that migrate five and a half miles above. The Arctic Turn in a one-year cycle travels 49,700 miles. In its 30-year lifespan, that would be like going to the moon and back three times. The average adult travels about the equivalent of going to the moon a half of time in its lifetime. You and I are weak. You and I are pitiful. And yet somehow, Paul says, we are a spectacle. In the beginning, Elohim created, he created creatures of the sea. Our ocean makes up about 71% of this affectionate thing we call earth, and we have explored almost 5% of it. Not long ago, my grandma and I, we were on an exploratory trip down in Carousel. Carousel is an island just north of Venezuela, and, and our intention was to be down there and take a submarine down and study these shells at a thousand feet below sea level. Now, one morning, the head marine biologist of the Smithsonian, he got up and he said to me, he said, Justin, today we are going to take a trap down to the bottom of the ocean. Now you can imagine my excitement because I'm thinking, sweet, we are with the Smithsonian. We are going to take this highly sophisticated trap down to the bottom of the ocean and see what we catch. So I go with him over to the lab and, and he goes and he picks up this five-gallon white bucket. Now, I'm not a fool because you don't ever judge a book by its cover. So I'm thinking to myself, well, nice. Inside of this bucket is a highly sophisticated Smithsonian trap. No, the bucket was the trap. So he proceeds to drill exactly one hole into the bucket. He puts one five-pound weight, and then he fills it with fish guts, puts the lid on top, and says, we've got it. This is our trap. So we go to the submarine. We put it on the submarine, and we're ready, and we descend 1,000 feet below sea level to put the trap out. Now we take that trap, we, we put it down on the bottom, and, and let me just sort of paint the picture for what I saw. Nothing. We put this, this highly sophisticated trap, you and I might call it a bucket with a hole, we put it down on the bottom of the ocean, 1,000 feet below the sea level, and as far as you could see was sand. You cut the lights and you can't see anything because light can't penetrate that far down. And so for a moment, I'm thinking to myself, what a waste of time. There's nothing around. We put the bucket down and we took the submarine off to this other little coral head that was there, however far away. We, we checked it out and it, maybe 15, 20 minutes had gone by and the, the biologist, he said, you know, let's go back. Let's take a little look at that trap. So we go back and... 15, 20 minutes later, and, and we shine the light on this trap, and I will never forget the sight. There were fish surrounding the trap. There were eels that had worked their way into the hole of the trap. There were invertebrae that were swimming and hovering around the trap. And, and in the sand, every direction leading up to that, you could see these little lines of, of snails and crabs and starfish and mollusks all working their way to the trap. 
These highly sophisticated, highly tuned sensory organs leading them to the dead fish in our trap. For the longest time, the Mariana Trench, it's about seven miles down. The pressure is thousands of feet per square inch. They had assumed that no life could exist down there. It's the deepest part of the ocean. Just recently, we've been able to send some unmanned submarines down there to check it out. You know what they found? Life. The, the assumption was that no sunlight rays can penetrate that far down. So, so what on earth could be feeding this, this ecosystem down there? Well, you have essentially what are underground volcanoes. And out of the underground volcanoes, you are having bacteria that's not only living but is thriving down there. And it's setting up these beautiful ecosystems that we've never even imagined could be on our planet. And they have these tube worms, T-U-B-E, tube worms that have lodged themselves basically into the crust of the earth. They don't have a stomach. They have two sets of gills. One set of gills extracts oxygen from the water. The other set houses this bacteria that synthesizes sugars from the water. And by the way, their head is at about 3 degrees Celsius and the feet of these tube worms is about 200 degrees Celsius. Be like you walking around in freezing ice cold water in your head and boiling boiling water at your feet. Yet they're thriving and they're these beautiful ecosystems down below our oceans. Electric eels produce enough electricity to light 10 light bulbs. Oysters change their gender and then change their gender back. Octopus have three hearts and their blood is the color blue. There are sponges that don't have a head, don't have eyes, don't have sensory organs, don't have anything that you and I have and yet they are still alive. And you know what? We've only explored less than 5% of the oceans that God created. You would think that angels and men would look down at the oceans and say, this, this is a spectacle. This is something I want to know more about. But Paul says, you are the spectacle. You are the theater, not just to men but to angels. And you, in the beginning God created you. I assume most of you can see me. You have 110 million cones in your eyes. You have 7 million rods and a million nerve fibers making that happen. That all working with your brain simultaneously, you're making about a trillion computations per second. You have a couple hundred billion brain cells that span into these neuron branches to the tune of about a, over a trillion. If you could extract the circulatory system from your body, it would wrap around the earth two and a half times. You have a hundred million white blood cells stored in your body. Every second your body is killing off eight million red blood cells and developing eight million new ones. Which begs to ask, how does my body know to keep producing more of me and not someone else? 
All of my blood cells have what we term DNA. Each blood cell has about six feet of DNA. If you wanted to type the code on how to make Justin, you would have to start typing now at 60 words per minute, eight hours a day, and 50 years later, you would complete the code. If you could line up that DNA end over end over end, it would start here, it would go to the sun, it would come back, and it would do that 600 times. My body is hardwired to be me, and your body is hardwired to be you and no one else. And I would submit to you this, if, if that were the end of the creation account, we would be fascinating. We would be about as interesting as the octopus with three hearts or the neutron stars, that's a hundred million pound cube of sugar or the atoms or the leptons or the quarks. We would be just equivalent on there. But we're not just that. We've been created to be more. So much more. The creation account doesn't just stop at that because you and I have something that is different. You and I have something that is different than anything else God created. These things are all interesting. These things are all, we observe them, we, we are in awe of them, and we feel insignificant, but we have something that they don't. According to the book of Genesis, and for a second I'd like to give you a, a little insight into my field where I get a little more comfortable than trying to share these facts about the earth, astronomy, or your body. Banking. I'm a banker. And I remember very vividly one of my mentors in banking. He said, Justin, you can be successful in banking if you learn one thing. If you learn how to say no. Banking if you learn how to say no, you will be successful. And so to, to understand the fundamentals of banking and the fundamentals of finance, we will go to the basics, the five C's of lending. Across the world, there are always individuals who are passionate, who have a great idea, who are ready to be the next Bill Gates. If they come in to request an investment from a bank, that investment is filtered through the criteria of the five C's of lending. How many C's are there? Five. And so the first thing that we're going to look at is collateral. Someone comes into the bank and, and, and it is assumed that they have an asset that is going to be a stable value and possibly an increasing value and, and something that if, if they get fallen into a pit and everything goes bad for them, they have something that can be a long enough rope to get them out. And so they look at the collateral they also look at the conditions, the economic conditions surrounding it. Let's say that you came in and you had this great idea for a newly invented mousetrap. We will take a look at the economic conditions and understand, is there a market for that? Are there individuals out there who will spend money to buy this mousetrap? And are there enough mice in the world that need to be trapped? So we're looking at the trends and we are looking for a positive trend. We're going to look at the capital. The FDIC has very specific 
banking regulatory guidance that says, you know, if, if, if a person comes in and they invest at least 51%, they are considered well capitalized. So that is to say with our mousetrap example, let's say you needed $50,000 to get this venture off the ground. If you put in more than $25,000, you would be considered well capitalized according to the FDIC. And then we're going to take a look at the capacity once we get the terms of the loan figured out and, and, and the bank decides that they're going to make the investment in you, do you have the ability to pay back the terms? So we've set up maybe the, a nice amortization and every month you pay back your principal and interest, but, but we're going to look at do you have the capacity to do that? And then we're going to take a look at the character, which is arguably the most important of the C's. Do you have the willingness to pay it back? In other words, when you come in, can I trust you as much as you trust me? And so those are sort of the five C's, the, the, the fundamental principles of the world of financing. And, and so I look at the book of creation sort of through those eyes of the five C's of lending. And we come to God with our insignificant human lives and he approaches it, praise God, not as a banker, but as a creator and as a loving God. And let me just be abundantly blunt with you. God is crazy. God is crazy. You think about it. You and I come to God and we say, God, can you give us an investment? And, and so through the, the fundamental understanding, the finance, we take a look at it and say, okay, 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 what kind of collateral can you offer? Most of the time we take collateral and it's an appreciating asset or at least something that's, that's going to maintain its value. By the time you and I meet our Creator at the eternity, we have nothing of value. You can't go to God and pledge your house or your bank account or your 401k because by the time you meet Him in eternity, that is worthless. And so we come to the creation account and, and our collateral is non-existent. Look at the economic conditions. Is there a positive trend that we can somehow pull out? No. You and I are one day older today than we were yesterday. We just entered into a new year. You and I are stuck in this thing we call time. We cannot go back in it. So, so that you and I, as we woke up this morning, we are one day older and one day closer to death. There's not a positive trend with our conditions. Look at the capital. Ha! What are you going to offer God? FDIC asks for 51% so that you can be well capitalized. Once a loan goes towards a negative direction, they have these other categories where you might be substandard or you might be doubtful. And at the very worst case, it's a loss. You look at your capital investment, you're not investing 50% or 25% or even 5%. You are investing zero. What could you possibly invest in and give to the creator of the universe? And then you look at the capacity. June 
27 of this year, I woke up to my wife saying, oh my, it was her body's way of telling her our son was going to be born that day. I will never forget the first time holding my son. He will never love me as much as I love him. Because before he had the ability, before he had the capacity to love me, I loved him. You don't have the capacity to love God more than he loves you. Because before he created you, he loved you. And character? Can God trust us as much as we trust him? God puts his absolute trust in us and we continue to fail him. So you look at the five C's of lending and everything about an investment in us screams, don't walk away from this investment, run away from this investment. But God, God doesn't look at life through the eyes of a banker. He looks at all the conditions. He looks at us, insignificant as we are, and he says, okay, I'll invest. In the terms of the investment, they don't even have vocabulary for that in finance because he says it's a gift. You don't have to pay me back. And so he looks at us, insignificant, and he makes the most significant investment anyone in the history of time has ever invested. Looks down at us, insignificant as we are, all the five C's screaming, stay away, run away. And he says, okay, I'll invest. I'll invest my image. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.